This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Operating under the most brutal conditions imaginable, combat medics fought to save lives as the war raged around them. In Vietnam, helicopters became virtual hospitals in the air, buying the combat medic valuable time to heal the wounded. Today, Max Cleland is a U.S. Senator from the state of Georgia. But in 1968, he was fighting in Vietnam. His tour was cut short by an accident that left him a multiple amputee. Perhaps more than anyone, he knows the valor of the men who try to save lives in the heat of combat. Senator Cleland recounts the accident that changed his life forever. I uh, felt that Vietnam was the war of my generation that I could not avoid, and I didn't want to avoid it. I was in uniform, I was a young lieutenant, I was on active duty as a young ROTC uh, graduate, and uh, it was the mid-60s, and uh, by 1967 I volunteered for Vietnam and went with the uh, 1st Air Cavalry Division. <clears throat> the 1st Air Cavalry Division was later committed uh, after the Tet Offensive in early 1968 to relieve the Siege of Quezon. So I went with that uh, relief unit with the 1st Cav, uh, surrounding the hills uh, near Quezon. On one mission, uh, I, I was a communications officer for an infantry battalion at the time, and uh, I went to, to unload my radio team on a hill uh, so we could set up a radio relay into Quezon for the battalion moving into Quezon, breaking the siege there that week. Uh, I got off a helicopter, ducked under the helicopter blades, had my flank vest on, my steel pot, uh, some grenades on my web gear, had my M16 in my left hand, turned around, looked at the helicopter, it took off, looked down, there was a grenade. Now, I didn't anticipate <clears throat> that it was an enemy grenade or that it was live, because grenades had fallen off my web gear uh, a lot. You know, you're moving around, you're jumping around, you're in and out of bunker and dodging rockets and whatever, and so life was pretty confusing. Uh, and so I thought it was mine. I thought it dropped off my web gear. And I still think probably it did. But uh, I had my M16 on my left hand. I reached down with my right hand to get it. I must have been about five or six inches from it when it went off. Uh, technically, I should be dead because the killing radius of a grenade is about five yards or five meters. Uh, you within that, you're dead. Well, my flank, flank just vest helped save me. Uh, my steel pot was blown off, and my left hand was saved because it was behind me holding my M16. But my right arm was blown off instantly. My right leg was blown off instantly, and my left leg was so badly mangled it was uh, amputated within the hour. So there I am laying on the ground, my windpipe shattered, can't speak, can't talk, and I'm laying on the ground bleeding and dying. Well, unbeknownst to me, a team of four Navy medical corpsmen attached to the Marine Corps were right there on that hill. I mean, Providence, good Lord, was looking after me. There's four medics, not just one, but four, right there on that hill. They rushed to me, and I can remember when they started cutting off my uniform. I thought, you know, in the military, uniform is sacrosanct. And I thought, here I am missing almost two legs and, and my right arm, and I'm bleeding and dying, and I'm thinking, God, don't cut off my uniform. <laughs> but they knew what they were doing. So they started cutting off my uniform, making an immediate tourniquet to, to, to stop the bleeding, and they called in an immediate uh, dust-off, or helicopter, a Huey, 
that was, uh, in effect, uh, the lifeline. But while I was laying there, they took care of me and uh, made sure I got on the medevac helicopter, which uh, got me to the Division 8 station. There, other medics took over, had an IV put in, in the chopper on the way to the bunker, and uh, one shot of morphine. And uh, they started asking me my name, rank, and service number. And I thought, you got to be kidding me, man. You know, I guess it was to, you know, make sure we get, we tag, tag this body properly, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I looked up at one medic and I said, you think I'm going to make it? And he said, you just might, you know. <laughs> I figured under the circumstances it was pretty much a word of encouragement. <laughs> so so uh, I was put on a helicopter again, flown to a, a Quonset hut on the South China Sea, uh, all this done within an hour, and uh, my life was saved by a team of uh, five physicians. But it was the medics that got to me first, and the medics in the helicopter that got the IV in, and it was the medics in the bunker in the division aid station that I think ultimately saved my life and the reason I'm here talking to you today. I was totally stunned by the grenade explosion. I, it was deafening, it threw me back, and. And then I, I was just absolutely felt like I was burning all over. Uh, later I found out it was the flash burn from the grenade that seared some of the wounds. Uh, is the reason I didn't die on the spot right there in a few minutes. <clears throat> but I, I lay there bleeding and dying and, and calling out for help. And uh, it was a powerful sense of helplessness, which I, which I, I really <laughs> have to say, that's why I think so much of medics. I mean, any military person who has ever been wounded or shocked or gone through trauma or whatever and had to call for a medic or call for help and is attended by a medic, boy, I'll tell you, uh, you never forget that. You never forget those young men who saved my life. The tragedy is I never knew their names. They went on to other situations in the war. And uh, looking back, God knows, I, I really owe my life to him. Cleveland knew that the odds were against him in those first moments. I was amazed, looking back, I didn't know that they were medics at the time. I didn't know there were Navy corpsmen, trained medics, four of them, attached to the Marine Corps at the time. It happened to be on that hill when I was on it. I mean, again, Providence, I think, intervened in my life and saved my life right there on the battlefield through the lives of four medics and their skill to respond instantly to a life-threatening situation for a soldier. And later, I look back, you know, what are the odds that four trained corpsmen medics are going to be right there with you when you have uh, uh, you know, three limbs basically blown off and are bleeding and dying on the ground? What are the odds? Pretty remote. But that's what medics they get there and they stop the bleeding, they, they get the IV in, they stabilize you as best you can, they talk to you, they encourage you, and they get you as soon as humanly possible to further aid uh, and ultimately surgery. And they did that all within the hour. <clears throat> in Vietnam, the statistics were that if you were wounded uh, and were able to receive medics and medical attention within the hour and didn't have a head injury, you stood a 98% chance of survival. But what that did was complicate life back in the States because what happened was 
we had 10,000 amputees out of the Vietnam War. More arms, legs, and eyes were lost in the Vietnam War than in World War I and Korea combined. So you save life on the battlefield through incredible, miraculous medics uh, and their training, and that just complicates the rehabilitation process back here. But at least your life is saved on the battlefield, and I consider that, and in my case, uh, certainly a miracle. They kept talking to me and they kept talking to each other. And, uh, and, 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 and looking back, <clears throat> they, they were really professional. And, and I, I, I wondered, how in the world do they know what they're doing? You know, I, I, I just thought it was a group of, <laughs> group of guys just got together and started, you know. But looking back, they were, they were trained and they were, they were really pros. And, and it wasn't just a couple of guys standing around and all of a sudden they saw an emergency. It was the medics and their skill and training really uh, stabilized me in those first few seconds and those first few moments. They really did know what to, what to do. And uh, I was, I couldn't do a thing, but lay there. And, uh, but they, they really got the job done as well as can humanly be possibly done in those first few moments. And I didn't have a sense that I was literally drifting out of life, <clears throat> that life was oozing away from me. And I had this sense, powerful sense, that if I slipped into unconsciousness, I would never regain it. I'd never come back. You know, I'm out of here. <laughs> I know I'm leaving here. <laughs> and uh, if, if, I, if I lose consciousness, I ain't making it back. I mean, I just, I just had that powerful knowing, you know, in an instant almost. And so I fought to stay conscious. And their voices, their shouting, their, their, their activity, you know, kept me in it, kept me conscious. Now, a fascinating thing about that is that's part of medical training, the training of medics. During World War II, in the war in Europe, medics, for the most part, were respected by the enemy and not targeted. But the medics and corpsmen in Vietnam were not so fortunate. It was much like you being acknowledged as a young lieutenant in the assault or a young radio telephone operator. You know, uh, the snipers picked the, picked the RTO the, the, the first, uh, and, and, the, and the person on each side of them, because one of them must be a leader, they also pick off the, 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 uh, the squad leader or the team leader, the point person. But the guy uh, who is obviously the medic is the guy who can help save some lives, and they go after him too. And also, uh, you know, uh, when that uh, Red Cross was painted on the side of a dust-off, those dust-off pilots were the most courageous pilots in Vietnam because they braved everything to get there and save a life. And uh, so the medics and the dust-off pilots saved my life. And that's how I wound up to be a United States Senator. I would never made it here without them. For Senator Cleland, the training of today's combat medics is critical. I was just earlier this year in Schweinfurt, Germany, where I, uh, ironically, uh, the, it was 30 years to the day I was wounded in Vietnam, April 8, 68, April 8, 98. And it was the first time I'd been in an Army helicopter uh, since I was in there with a medic putting an IV in my arm, you know, blown away 30 years ago. I went down to see in Schweinfurt, Germany, uh, training of Army medics. And I, went, I saw their training, and it was very realistic. And I noticed how they're trained to talk to, uh, in effect, their, their patients. You know, you know, stay with me. Don't lose it. I'm here, you know. 
uh, that's, that's part of it, to keep the patient conscious. Because I, I knew if I'd lost consciousness, I, I was gone. And I understand you had an encounter or saw a particular medic doing that, and you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about him. Yes. I, I was particularly impressed with one young man who, who went through the training. Because he was not only good technically and, and in it, and with powerful distractions and bombs going off and smoke grenades and so forth, they make it very realistic. And they're taking two or three patients at a time, two or three litter casualties at a time. And he, and he kept talking to him, kept talking to him. And I, and I thought, you know, this guy's really good. And so afterwards, I brought him over and I said, you know, I would have been honored for you to, for you to treat me, you know. And uh, afterwards, uh, when I left, he said, I. He told Stars and Stripes, he said, I, I want to remember the general, but I'll always remember the senator in a wheelchair. And I hope uh, every medic uh, in the, in the uh, military, regardless of which branch of service, uh, realizes that they got one United States senator that somebody, one of their predecessors, saved on the battlefield that now appreciates their service. I think it is a special breed. I think they have to have a special commitment uh, to people and to life and to life saving because in effect, they're not uh, under arms, so to speak. Soldiers are pretty much armed to the teeth. I was when I got wounded. Man, I had about everything you could carry, <laughs> you know, M16, 45, knife, everything, you know, uh, grenades. But <clears throat> medics uh, are there to not take life, but, but save it. And actually, every time they do their job, they put themselves at risk, every time. When they go to that wounded soldier, sailor, airman, marine corpsman, whatever, uh, whenever they do that, they put themselves at risk. They put themselves in harm's way as well, but they're there to save a life and not take it. But his biggest regret was not knowing the names of the men who saved his life. I would like to know them. I'd like to know uh, their names. I'd like to know what happened to them. I have no idea what unit. I have no idea who they were. I was told later by some people in the area that they were Navy corpsmen, and that's why they reacted so quickly and so well. They were attached to the Marine Corps. I was an Army guy, but it didn't matter. I was on the hill, I was in need, they came to me, and they saved my life. Uh, I would like to know more, but I guess I never will. But for all the corpsmen out there, uh, I'd just like to say, Thanks. I hope I've earned it. Clarence Sasser received the Medal of Honor for his courageous efforts as a combat medic in Vietnam. As a combat medic, the most valuable instrument in Clarence's arsenal was the helicopter. The Hewitt of Dustalf medevac helicopters were probably the best thing that happened to those that were injured over there. Um, they saved a lot of lives. Um, they were first, um, not in the form of the Huey, but uh, first incorporated into uh, emergency trauma on the battlefield during Korea from the MASH series. It was uh, expanded during Vietnam to the UH-1D uh, helicopters that configured to carry uh, stretchers of injured persons or soldiers. Uh, they were the lifesaver of a lot of, lot of people. Um, the injuries in Vietnam were quite severe, particularly from the booby traps and things like that. 
that would uh, blow off a leg or a foot or something like that. And almost invariably during World War II, these people died because of blood loss, because of the delay in getting them back to, uh, uh, I want to say competent medical care, but we, as combat medics, we thought we were competent also. But to get them back to uh, first-rank treatment, uh, people that lost a leg with severe trauma to arteries and veins like that almost invariably died, bled to death. Uh, the Hueys would uh, get them back to that advanced treatment so quickly until a lot of them were saved with uh, emergency procedures, a lot, of them, a, lot of, a lot of soldiers were saved. Uh, it's probably prudent of me to put a little praise on those people that flew those machines. Uh, if you called them, they came. If it was any way possible to get in there, they would get in there. And because of their attitude, their, their own bravery, a lot of people were saved. I know uh, several guys that uh, currently now that were double amputees had parts blown off, lower legs blown off that I know would have died in any other war other than Vietnam. So they were, they were remarkable. They had a remarkable record in coming in the hot spots, hot landing zones, picking up people and uh, getting them out. They, they, did, they did wonders. My, I can't praise them enough. I can't praise those pilots enough. But the times the helicopters weren't available to retrieve the wounded were pure hell for Sasser. We went in uh, to an area on helicopters, slicks we call them. <laughs> Bring back a little memory. Some of them good, some of them bad. But uh, we went into this area on helicopters. Uh, the, the entire company did. And uh, it turned out to be a fairly hot area which was, I uh, really hate to say, sort of common back then, that uh, you went in the areas and you found more than you expected. But uh, it's, it was sort of interesting because we were not scheduled for any action. We were a backup company that, on that mission. And uh, we were just to take it easy until or if and when, uh, another company or uh, someone got into trouble and needed some reinforcements, some backup, or somebody to pull them out, the term we used back then. And uh, we were just cooling it. And uh, orders came down from our battalion headquarters that wanted us to go check out an area that they had found that they suspected may be an area of activity. So we ate that morning and loaded on the helicopters about nine that morning, went into this area, and it was daybreak the next morning before we got out, those of us that lived. It's a particularly distressing period to remember and everything. Uh, Probably the hardest part of it all was spending the night with my friends and just listening to them call big for help when you couldn't do anything. 
You knew some of them were dying. You knew they were dying. You knew you'd never see some of them again. As for myself, I had been injured fairly severely, but I guess being the medic, I knew that uh, my injuries were not life-threatening. So, you know, other than the pain and the trauma and the fright, it was something. It really was. But hell, I got through it. You know, in times of intense stress such as this, you know, there are certain things that you know need to be done. And in this instance, we were trapped in a rice field. No cover whatsoever. You couldn't, with enemy troops dug in, uh, artillery already zeroed in on that position. We were taking severe incoming hits. And the safest thing to do would be to get to the tree line, and that's what I was trying to get my guys to do. Uh, take the chance and get to the tree line, you're probably better off than staying out here. Uh, we were in dire straits, I guess, probably the best way to put it. Uh, and if you could make it to the wood line, at least you'd have a little bit of cover other than a thin blade of, of rice, or a thin rice stalk. It's one of those things that instinct tells you, I guess. But at any rate, that's what I was doing. Uh, uh, encouraging them to at least try to make it to the wood lines by by trying to get there. It, it, it was a lot better than just laying here waiting on things to to come in to kill you. Probably the <laughs> probably the uh, most striking uh, remembrance of that day was was the leeches. We were in a rice paddy and. And you, of course, you couldn't stand up. You had to lay in the water. Or you, the only protection or cover what, that 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 was available were, were the uh, the levees, the dikes. That didn't afford very much protection. Uh, and to utilize those, you you couldn't stand up. You couldn't stand up anyway because of the in, incoming and the snipers and the and the. Uh, the the gunfire, but uh, I remember laying laying in the water and fighting leeches all night, and just just terrible. The night is always the worst part, and it's probably the worst part because it is night and you can't see. But the sounds were the sounds of sporadic gunfire, sporadic sniper fire. The sounds of fellow soldiers, I guess essentially dying. Uh, probably the worst sound was hearing your fellow soldier, your friend calling for his mama to help him. And you know there's nothing you can do. 
there's no help you can do other than comfort. If you could get there, uh, having already been injured, wounded, there's very little I can do. We, uh, used up medical, used up all of my medical supplies, had found another medic's bag and had used that up. And there's just nothing you can do. Uh, plus there's the point of tempting fate of even trying, knowing, trying to uh, find him and, uh, and get to him is again a further risk of your life. In the eyes of the enemy, Sasser and his fellow combat medics were prized targets. The whole thing was scary. <laughs> but after a while, even that becomes second nature. Uh, that's probably, that's, that's what I find one of the most marvelous things about the human psyche, is it get used to things, no matter how bad it is, it can get used to it. And it will get used to it if it's given enough time. The scariest moments, Oh, I had been uh, helping a wounded soldier out and was going back to what I call my little spot. At this point, we're still in the rice paddy. And was going back to my spot where a friend was, where I knew that he was laying there. And uh, the I didn't dare stand up because obvious reasons, stand up, the sniper can find me. Uh, it was obvious who I was or what I was to anybody uh, observing the, 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 the area. Medic was a fairly high priority in that you killed a medic and injured people die, so you got a, a much higher casualty rate. And all of a sudden, I heard what we had uh, uh, come to know of as incoming. Uh, if you've been there, you can always tell when it's coming in just from the sound of it. I heard it, and I heard it, and I knew by the sound and the direction that it was going to land pretty close to me. Uh, the question is, what do you do? Do you freeze and stay, or do you try to get away? But again, you have only a few senses to try to figure out w w what's going to happen, where it's going to go, and all of that. But I knew this one was coming fairly close to me. So the method I had hit on to uh, get around in the rice paddy, uh, there were probably uh, 40, 45% mud with a little layer of water on top. The mud in this, in this, in this uh, rice paddy was at least thigh deep with water up to the waist. And it made moving extremely difficult. So I had hit on the, 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 the method of I could grab a handful of rice and just pull myself sliding over the, over the, water, over the mud in the water. And I could move around quicker that way, plus I was down and uh, uh, was out of line of sight, in other words. So I heard this coming in, and uh, oh man, oh, oh Lord, it's gonna be close. So I started moving and everything, and 
got to a, uh, and understand when I say the distance, we're not talking over 10 or 12 feet, uh, and got to a, a intersection of two dikes that formed a cross. And just as I was rolling up and was gonna put my back out because I knew it was gonna fall, they came down and hit right where I was when I realized that, I, that, it, that when I initially heard it. That to me probably was the scariest moment of knowing that if I didn't do something, it was gonna get me. It still sprayed me with shrapnel and all of that, but again, not life-threatening. Many of the soldiers treated by Sasser were victims of the Viet Cong's clever booby traps. However, the hardest obstacle he had to overcome was his own fear. The most difficult thing I found um, there was uh, involved uh, isolated injuries, of, uh, injuries from booby traps. There were a lot of booby traps set over in Vietnam. Some were self-effacing ones, others were command detonated ones. Uh, what I found the scariest, I guess the scariest, most difficult thing to do was, was usually if somebody hit a booby trap, it was either our point man or the first in the lines in, in, in the uh, line of movement that, that hit it. Uh, invariably, when they hit a booby trap, the medic had to go. Uh, if it was a command detonator, that meant that somebody was sitting somewhere that pushed a button or threw a lever that detonated that when that soldier got within range. What if he sat two there, did one and got the, and injured the person, and then when the medic came to see about him, do the other. That was always the, the uh, scariest most difficult thing to deal with that if I go up here after him, how do I know it's not command detonated? Well, after a little while you learn to just trust your luck. It sort of breeds a little bit of that. And in fact, it, the whole war bred that type of thought. And if I can interject a, a personal opinion is probably the problem with those of us that uh, have had problems readjusting. Um, it's, it promoted a situation of right now, of today. You know, why worry about tomorrow? I, I mean, you know, tomorrow I'll probably be dead. And when you get into a mentality like that, it becomes doubly hard on the mind to uh, get to, shall we say, get out of it. Uh, again, it's personal opinion, nothing nothing to prove it, don't want anything to prove it, don't want to even think about it too much. But uh, it, 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 to me, it promoted a right now type attitude. Uh, why should I worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow is definitely not promised and I probably won't be here tomorrow. So it, 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 to me, that was the uh, the worst thing about it uh, was uh, the attitude it promoted in in, in the soldiers. Uh, the chance of that uh, almost any day, any minute, you know, it could be your last.
while I believe that almost any soldier that was over there would have done what, I, I guess I'm going to say what I did. Uh, I guess life sometimes tells me that maybe it's not. Uh, there were soldiers in uh, the unit I was with that didn't do what they didn't do their job because of fear. And as we all know, fear can sometimes be very paralyzing. It's just a case of, as in directing the the uh, the uh, soldiers to the wood line, somebody has to do something. Uh, when it comes to that, somebody has to do something. And uh, I guess I always sort of feel it's better me than thee. Uh, at least I know what's, what I'm doing, and it, just action in itself relieves a little stress rather than sitting and uh, succumbing to paralyzing fear, because it certainly can be fear. I mean, to be in a jungle-type environment, pitch dark at night because of the canopy, no light can get through it anyway. And to hear something and and, and know that there, there's, there's a, a real good probability that booby traps are everywhere. I mean, that, that it produces some ungodly fear. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The camaraderie amongst the soldiers in Clarence Sasser's unit made his job as a medic seem all the more worthwhile. You have to look at it in context. I live with these, with these guys. They were my friends. We ate, slept, joked, played, partied, and everything else together. Uh, they were friends, and I, I don't think that there is any person alive today that when a friend has a problem won't try to help them. And above and beyond, there are two other factors. Number one, it was my job. My job was to take care of them. If they got injured or wounded, my job was to take care of them. That was my job. I had no other job. And the second part of it was nobody needed a medic that wouldn't do his job. Uh, you were accorded a certain amount of status within the unit by virtue of being doc, the medic. And along with that goes obligations. Uh, one of those obligations is that if I'm hurt, doc, you look, you, you look out for me. Yeah, I'll take care of you. Well, that's a promise. So you, you throw all of those in together and 
I refuse to believe that any prudent person wouldn't do it. It's a, it's a, probably, if I were to guess at it, I would say it's probably one of the reasons the powers that be put the medic with the, with the platoon and had him live with them rather than when they go out to draw a medic as you would draw a carbine or something of that nature. Um, you form bonds, you form camaraderie, and along with that uh, go obligations. I felt particularly, particularly strong about it because of that. Uh, within the, the, the platoon, and there, there, there are four, four platoons in a company, and each platoon had a medic. Within the platoon, you were accorded a certain amount of status. For instance, when we were out on long, for long period, extended periods of time and we were resupplied with sea rations to food, the first case that was broke open, the doc got his choice out of it. Well, you know, uh, that, there's an obligation to that. And that obligation is that you will do your job when the time comes, regardless. And that's what it is. You could always say, well, I don't know, I think it's too hot to go out there, hot as in the lid and not the temperature. <laughs> you could always say it's too hot to go out there, but uh, what about that person's friend that's watching what's going on? What's he gonna think about you? What's he gonna do to you? Remember, we are in a combat zone where there are no laws other than survival and kill the enemy. So what's going to happen if his friend is out there dying and you refuse to go because you're scared or you may get hurt? You may not get hurt. So what's going to happen? What's he going to do when his friend dies and he say, the doc didn't go? Just may find you next time. Next time a firefight break out, you just may be a casualty. Yeah have been instances, I'm sure. I can't quote any, but I'm sure there have been instances, just as there have been other instances of things that weren't quite proper. But uh, you go. It's your job to go. It's your duty to go. And that's why. But according to Sasser, the combat medic had to assume many roles on and off the battlefield. We had a, a chaplain in the company, but chaplains were uh, at least company grade. Uh -huh. And uh, but that is another part of a medic. A, a medic's job, uh, I guess, sort of like a, 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 as a listener, psych, a, a psych, psychiatric type counselor to to the people, to the to the uh, soldiers, I should say. And. Uh, you listen and you talk to them and you discuss girlfriends and dear John letters and things of that nature and pats on the back for a good job and all of that. And, and uh, it's just, uh, it, it has a tremendous settling effect on the troops to know that if something happens, Doc will be there, Doc will take care of me. And it's a tremendous psychological advantage, I think. When, um, Again, a reason for him to be with them. What about the uh, the role of being the mother hen? <laughs> yeah, you looked out for your people. You 
It's, a, again, part of his job. His job is the, the welfare, the care, the health, the health of the entire platoon. Uh, if one has a problem, it's just like a mother hen. If if uh, if one has a problem, you go get him and you go try to try to square it away. Uh, whatever. If you had to go to the to the CO for about it, uh, whatever you did it. Uh, whatever they, the guys came to you about, you tried to work with it. Uh, and, and of course, that there's also that little point about confidant in, 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 in the equation too. Uh, you listen to their cares, their troubles, their fears, and if it warranted action, it was your job to do it. Otherwise, it, it was a mother hen type situation in that you looked out for your people. You you did whatever you thought would help this person to be a better soldier to, particularly when you were out in the field. In the base camp, there were other avenues for them, but out in the field, it was your job to look after their welfare. It was your job to stand up for them if their injuries were such that they needed to go back in. It was your job to get to the CO to get him back in. Without a doubt, you have a lot of them die in your arms, and that's no, not a good feeling. Uh, depends on where it was. Of course, in TV, you always see them saying the last words and all of that, and, and then an exhalation of breath, and then they're dead. A lot of times, they're unconscious when you got there. There was no such thing as confession. Just a matter of just a matter of holding them in trying to get them on cross to the other side. It's nothing you could do. Happens a lot. Happen a lot. But life goes on. Clarence Sasser remains proud to have been that special breed of soldier known as the combat medic. I was a medic and but above that, I was a soldier. I like to think I was a soldier. I chipped in and helped the platoon do things that uh, uh, was termed routine. I pulled uh, CQ watch along with them. I uh, helped clean weapons, and I just did. I just like to think I did my job. You see somebody down, it's ingrained in you to help them. Uh, it, it's ingrained in the medics that, uh, to help, and it's probably something brought out by the aptitude test that they give you when you go in. I would, I would like to think that's what it, what it is, but uh, no medic or former medic can, refuse, can ever not help in someone that's down. Uh, there have been instances since I've uh, been out of the service where I came up on automobile accidents and the urge to help is there. Uh, several such instances uh, was there again. It goes back to somebody has to do something. Uh, it's just ingrained in you that uh, your, your job is to help people.
A medic has been a special person uh, throughout all uh, warfare. Uh, it's genuinely recognized that some injuries in, 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 in war may not be totally disabling to a soldier and with sufficient treatment you regain the use of that soldier. Uh, plus there's the, the psychological advantage of knowing that if I get hurt someone's here to take care of me. I, I won't, I, they won't leave me behind to die. That, in my estimation, uh, has a bearing on the temperament of a fighting soldier. Uh, it's a tradition way back to the Civil War with Dr. Mary Walker, uh, back to the Revolutionary War with medics during, then, during, during those times. So it, it, again, it, it does have a long and glorious history of which I'm especially proud that I fitted in, that I was one. I am uh, especially proud, although I mean nothing by the statement, uh, that my medal was awarded for saving lives rather than taking lives. To me, it makes a difference. Although in life it does not make a difference, but to me it makes a difference. It's a point of satisfaction for me. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the camaraderie. I enjoyed the status that it uh, bestowed on, on me. Uh, I'm, I was, I'm a people person. I was a people person before, and it fell in with that. Uh, had it to do over again, I don't have any regrets. I mean, you know, I could leave out the injuries and all of that, as I'm sure everybody would, but other than that, I don't have any regrets. I am intensely proud to be able to have won a medal or been awarded a medal of honor since most people think you're winning, but really you don't win it. It's, it's I guess, technically earned and everything. I'm intensely proud to be a medal of honor recipient. To me, it epitomizes that I did my job. Nothing more, nothing less. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.